Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and even conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 153 for the first half of December 2016. The topic I'm going to talk about today is radiation. There is no actual, factual, pseudoscientific claim that I'm addressing in this episode. Instead, I wanted to do a very basic science episodes that you, the listener, have a thorough background to understand the term radiation. The idea of deadly radiation doing something, anything really, is pervasive in many different kinds of pseudoscience, including things that I've talked about on the show, like the Apollo moon landings, to things that I haven't talked about the show and don't really plan to do a standalone episode on, like cell phones and whether your pretty granite countertop is slowly killing you. The term radiation has really become one of the catch-all boogeymen of conspiracies, and personally, I've found that the attempts to explain it on other podcasts by saying things like, well, cell phone signals are non-ionizing, I found that to not really be incredibly useful. So let's try to demystify this concept, and I warn you ahead of time, this is going to be one of those longer episodes. The fundamental physics definition of radiation is simply the emission or the transmission of energy through anything, be it space or something that we would perceive as solid, like a wall. The energy can be in the form of waves or particles. And that's it. That's all that radiation is. So then it's the different energy levels of radiation that we have to explore, and that's where we get to ionizing versus non-ionizing radiation. In chemistry, the basic building blocks of everything that we do are atoms. All you need to define an atom is a single proton, which is a relatively massive, positively charged piece of matter. Protons can be joined by neutrons in the core of an atom, and you can try to cram a bunch of neutrons together into an atom, but eventually it goes unstable, and the neutrons will fly away, much like the last time I tried to pack too many clothes in a suitcase. Sometimes those neutrons will take a couple of protons along with them. Atoms can also have negatively charged particles bound to them, also known as electrons. These are relatively light particles compared with the proton or the neutron, weighing in at a little under 1 1,800th as much. And, just like you can cram in neutrons, you can add or subtract electrons to or from an atom. If you have just as many electrons as you have protons, then the atom is electrically neutral. If you add more electrons to an atom than there are protons, it will become electrically negative. The opposite is also true, such that if you have fewer electrons than there are protons, the atom is positively charged. So if you just have, for example, a bare hydrogen atom, it's a single proton, it's going to be positively charged. You add one electron orbiting it, and it's going to be neutrally charged. If you add another electron orbiting, it's going to be negatively charged, because now there are two electrons for one proton. If an atom, or a group of atoms called a molecule, is not electrically neutral, as in the number of electrons is not the same as the number of protons, then it's called an ion. So an ion is just a molecule that has a net electric charge, either positive or negative. Therefore, following the terminology, ionizing radiation is radiation, that's either a particle or a wave, that has enough energy to change the number of electrons in an atom. It pretty much always does this by removing an electron so that the atom becomes more positively charged. 
The reason that this is bad is that the chemistry in your body, like basic DNA replication, requires atoms and molecules to be charged the way that your body wants them to be charged. And changing that is going to interfere with normal body processes. It can interfere to the extent of if you change the charge of an atom that's in a molecule, it can break that molecule apart, like, say, the DNA molecule. More on that later. With all that being said as more of an overview to the terminology, I want to spend the bulk of this main segment really talking about more about what radiation is. I already gave the basic definition, but that's not necessarily meaningful to most people, including me, actually. So what I'm going to do now is talk through a lot of examples of radiation. The first kind that I want to talk about are cosmic radiation or cosmic rays. Rays here is a little bit of a misnomer because pretty much anything defined as a cosmic ray or identified as a cosmic ray is actually a particle. A lot of cosmic rays come from the sun, and they form what's called the solar wind. This is mostly composed of energetic protons, so again, hydrogen atoms, but they have a lot of energy. In particle physics, when we refer to a specific particle as energetic, we mean that it's moving really, really fast. It's the energy of motion usually. Cosmic rays also come from outside of the solar system, originating from other stars or much more energetic events like supernova, gamma ray bursts, or black holes. Galactic cosmic rays, as in ones that don't come from the sun, are even more energetic than solar cosmic rays. On Earth, our atmosphere shields us from most cosmic rays. The particles will enter the atmosphere and usually hit an atom or molecule in our atmosphere, interacting with it and releasing its energy in the form of other particles. Those secondary particles can still reach the ground or maybe interact with other molecules in the atmosphere. But the safety of our atmosphere extends only so high, and if you're in an aircraft flying at a standard 12 kilometers or about 40,000 feet, you're exposed to 10 times the cosmic rays you're exposed to on the ground at sea level. Earth's magnetic field will also help to shield us from cosmic rays, but only the ones that are positively or negatively charged. Electrically neutral cosmic rays effectively won't even see Earth's magnetosphere. And cosmic rays can do significant damage to both humans and to our technology, specifically to electronics. They're one of the major engineering problems to sustained human exploration of space because of their high energy and therefore their ability to interact with molecules in the human body and do bad things. They also will interact with electronic systems, and they really have not only led to faults in spacecraft computer systems, but they'll also just fry some electronics beyond recovery. In fact, we can feel those effects on the ground. Something that's proliferated in the last decade or so is known as ECC RAM. So this is RAM, which is the stuff that all of your... Uh, open programs and open documents on your computer are temporarily stored in, it's RAM in your computer that is error correcting. So this is because not only your computer might do something stupid and do something to your RAM, but also because of cosmic ray hits that can change a single electronic bit from a zero to a one or a one to a zero and therefore corrupt what's in the memory, hence causing uh, applications to fail or documents to become corrupt or something else bad happening. ECC RAM is pretty much immune to those kinds of issues. 
Getting back to astronomy, cosmic rays are not to say that you can't survive in space. It's all about the dosage, and it's all about playing with the statistics. Just like there's no hard limit on the number of airplane flights you can take and then you'll die, like you can take 38 flights in a year and you'll be fine, but don't you dare take that 39th flight or you'll die. That doesn't happen, and the same goes for space flight. It's the cumulative dosage that causes problems in people, and how quickly can our bodies actually correct any damage that's done. If one cosmic ray interacts with one cell over your entire lifetime, your body will be able to recover. Or, say, a hundred in a year. But maybe once you start getting interactions in the order of a million times in a one-week period, then we have issues. And for the record, I'm making these numbers up here. The point is that more dosage, more exposure in a shorter period of time is what's going to be bad. I don't want to actually talk about dosage here because, uh, or radiation monitoring, because that's not really the point in here. The point is to understand the basic concepts. And with that said, for people, again, the same goes for electronics. Let's say that you have a spherical spacecraft that is one meter in radius, and one cosmic ray that can do damage you know is going to pass through the cross-section of that sphere every second. But... The electronics that could be damaged are only in a small part of the spacecraft, so you just have to play the numbers. If the electronics that could be damaged are, say, only 1% of the volume, then in any given batch of 100 seconds, you are likely to have one cosmic ray hit that electronics and do damage. But now let's say that you have some way to shield your electronics from most cosmic rays. So now, the ones that can both get past your shield and do damage will only hit once a year. Now, if you have thousands of these spacecraft out there, you would expect that about half of them would have died after 100 years by playing the numbers. One that you care about may die instantly and just got unlucky. Another one that you care about may last a thousand years, and it got lucky. Again, it's really a statistics game, which I think I'm going to talk more about in the next episode. And so, that is the basic idea behind cosmic radiation, as well as the idea of shielding humans and electronics from that radiation, or at least what shielding does or tries to do. In practice, because cosmic rays are so energetic, meaning that they're moving really fast, and so when they slam into you, they can release a lot of energy, they are among the most dangerous forms of radiation in the universe. They are ionizing because they have enough energy to remove electrons from molecules within the living cells in your body, and so, as I said, they're dangerous. The next kind of radiation that I want to discuss are also ionizing radiation, Remember, that's the radiation that can remove electrons from an atom. But now, I want to talk about the particle form of ionizing radiation in a more general sense, and these are the kinds of radiation that we're probably a little bit more used to. Namely, these are alpha, beta, and neutron radiation. Alpha particles, or alpha radiation, is formed through the alpha decay process of heavy atoms. This gets back to what I talked about early in the episode, that if you try to cram a bunch of neutrons into an atomic nucleus, it can become unstable, and it's going to spit stuff out. Depending on exactly what's going on, one of the things that it can spit out is called an alpha particle, or again, alpha radiation. 
Alpha radiation is something that you'd never really think of as being dangerous radiation. It's basically, not basically, it is a helium atom, specifically helium-4. Helium is defined as an atom with two protons, and that's pretty much it. You can have a bunch of different kinds of helium based on how many neutrons you add to it, and you can have a bunch of different ionization states of helium depending upon how many electrons you add to it. Helium-4 means that the total protons and total neutrons in the nucleus of the atom add up to four. So it has two protons and two neutrons. Usually, helium is perfectly safe. People breathe it in at parties to sound like a chipmunk. What can make helium or alpha particles or even the more scary sounding alpha radiation dangerous is when it's energetic, meaning that from before, it's moving really, really fast. Helium itself, when stationary, is the heaviest form of radiation. Therefore, it really doesn't have to move that fast or nearly as fast as other kinds of particle radiation in order to do the same kind of damage, if it can get to something and actually do that kind of damage. What I mean by that is, not only is helium heavy, it's big. A bowling ball traveling slowly is going to hurt you just as much if it hits your foot as if you throw a lightweight tennis ball at your foot. But if you have a gate that's small enough to let a tennis ball through, but not a bowling ball, then it doesn't matter how fast that bowling ball moves, it's not going to hit your foot, unless it happens to break the gate. So typically, alpha particles are harmless unless they somehow get into your body, or something that emits alpha particles gets into your body. I mean, a mylar balloon is going to block an alpha particle. A tiny, tiny, thin sheet of rubber is going to block an alpha particle. A piece of paper is going to block an alpha particle. Your skin is going to block an alpha particle. So, in effect, if we want it to be non-technical, it's non-ionizing if it's outside of the body. But if you ingest something, like if you eat it or if you breathe it, and that something then emits helium atoms in your body, then it can do damage. So let's say you have a granite countertop. I don't, but maybe you do. That granite is a rock, and just like any rock that's a combination of lots of different minerals, it has some heavy elements in it, and some of those are radioactive, such as radium, uranium, and thorium. What that means is that these atoms are unstable over the long run because they have too much crammed into the nucleus of the atom, and over time, they're going to decay, emitting other particles. Let's take uranium. Uranium-238 is actually quite stable with a half-life of the age of the solar system, but that doesn't mean that every atom of uranium-238 is going to live about 4.5 billion years, and then suddenly every single molecule is going to all at once decay. It means that after 4.5 billion years, half of the uranium-238 will have decayed, which is why the 4.5 billion years is called a half-life. Again, remember, physicists and astronomers are not that creative at naming things. So with that in mind, uranium-238 is going to decay into thorium-234. You'll notice that 234 is 4 less than 238. That means that we have four things that are different. That means that it's a good chance that an alpha particle is what's going to be emitted as the decay product. And that's the case here. Uranium-238's decay into thorium-234 emits an alpha particle. 
Thorium-234 only has a half-life of 24 days, at which point it decays into protactium-234 by emitting a beta particle, which I'll discuss in a minute or two. This only has a half-life of a minute, and then it decays again. Then, that only has a half-life of 7 hours, and then it decays again. There's a whole complicated series of different decay products, but they all decay by alpha or beta radiation and will eventually end up as the very, very stable atom lead-206. In this process, it will emit 8 helium atoms. One of the intermediate products of the uranium-238 decay is a gas, radon-222. Radon-222, as a gas, can escape from a nice, pretty granite countertop, and it can be inhaled. It only has a half-life of 35 milliseconds, but remember, we're talking about a single atom here. If you're working at your countertop all day, chances are that you will inhale some radon gas, and its byproducts will release four alpha particles before they turn into lead. I was listening to an old episode of the Reality Check podcast on a drive through northern Arizona, and after double-checking this on WebMD, I can tell you that radon gas is the third leading cause of lung cancer, with an estimated 12% of all lung cancer deaths attributed to radon gas in the United States, or 15 to 22,000 per year, all because of helium atoms. Bet you'll never look at a party balloon the same way. With that said, when I do redo my kitchen, I'm going to get rid of the disgusting tile countertops and I will be putting in granite. And I will be putting a lot of sealant on it. Repeatedly. Often. I'm much more likely to die in a car crash or, since I'm in the United States, of a stray bullet than I am of radon gas poisoning. So moving on, the second kind of particle radiation that I want to talk about is beta radiation. That's beta as in the Greek letter B-E-T-A. Beta radiation is either an electron or, if positively charged, an antimatter form of the electron, the positron. The electron form of beta radiation occurs when a neutron decays into a proton, releasing a beta-minus particle, the electron, and an antineutrino. Together, Alpha and beta radiation are exclusively the methods by which heavier atoms will decay into lighter atoms. Because of the size of the electron, beta radiation is much smaller than an alpha particle or alpha radiation, and so it can get through the outer layers of your skin. But a few centimeters or about one inch of plastic, or a few millimeters of most metal, is going to stop beta radiation. But if that beta radiation is highly energetic, again, moving really, really, really fast, or if it somehow gets inside your body through some other means, like you eat something that's going to emit it, it can do damage by stripping electrons from atoms. The third kind of particle radiation is neutron radiation, as in electrically neutral particles. It's hard to make neutrons into ionizing radiation, but it can be done indirectly. Let's say that you have a really fast-moving neutron. The neutron itself can't do really anything on its own in terms of ionizing an atom. But what it can do is it can slam into something like a hydrogen atom, which can just be a proton, and it's going to transfer some of its energy of motion into that proton, just like when you hit billiard balls on a pool table. Then that now fast-moving hydrogen atom or proton is charged, It's energetic, 
and it can do damage by stripping other atoms of their electrons. But unlike alpha particles and beta particles, which are reasonably stable, except for positrons, which will annihilate with an electron and release a gamma ray, which we'll talk about in a moment, neutrons are surprisingly unstable. Much like my chickens, when they're caged in with other particles, like protons, they're really quite stable, and they're going to have a long and healthy lifetime. But if let out, a free-range neutron, just like a free-range chicken up here in the mountains, is not going to stay alive very long. The half-life is just under 15 minutes, although for a chicken it's usually a little longer, in my experience. This means that for neutrons to really do much damage to a person, you have to be in a place that has a lot of neutrons, that also gets them into really high speeds, and you're likely to get them into your body. Typically, a nuclear reactor is going to satisfy these, and really, not much else. So, at the end of this partial section of the episode about ionizing particle radiation, you're typically pretty safe in most of your everyday life. You likely don't work inside of a nuclear reactor. You're probably not a pilot, although I have at least two pilot friends who are listeners of this podcast. And you probably have, you know, maybe a little bit of radon gas emitting rocks in the bedrock uh, underneath your house or maybe in a granite countertop. But there's lots of other stuff that's probably going to kill you first. So next up in this discussion is the final type of ionizing radiation, light. It's also non-ionizing radiation as well, but I'm going to talk about that next. What makes light ionizing, or not, is its energy level. Because light can act both as a particle and as a wave, I'm usually in this discussion going to just refer to it as a photon. In order, from most energy to least energy, photons are classified by physicists as gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet, visible, infrared, microwave, and radio. On the ends, gamma rays have no high-energy cutoff point, and radio waves have no low-energy cutoff point. While there are formal cutoffs between each type, this is to a certain extent an artifact of the human desire to classify things. In nature, it's not like a photon is a gamma ray, and it loses just a little teeny tiny quantum of energy, and suddenly its entire nature changes as it becomes an X-ray. That's not what happens. These are really just fairly arbitrary delineations in physics, although they are useful in a couple of different ways. For example, perhaps obviously, visible light is light that the human eye can see. But even that is not exactly as objective as you may think, because each eye is different, and the high-end and low-end cutoffs are different for every person. For example, there's an absorption line in the sun's spectrum that's in the infrared, but it was defined and found before we knew how to see infrared light and before we were able to predict where these absorption lines would be. That means that the person who discovered that line was able to see a little bit into the infrared that most other people can't. The delineations are also useful when classifying ionizing versus non-ionizing types of light. All gamma rays have enough energy to be ionizing radiation. All X-rays have enough energy to be ionizing radiation. Most ultraviolet has enough energy to be ionizing radiation. Visible light, infrared, microwave, and radio do not have enough energy to be ionizing radiation. 
If a gamma ray is headed towards you, it is so high energy that it's easily going to go through your skin and can impact denser muscle or bone tissue, knocking off electrons as it gets absorbed or absorbed and re-emitted at lower energies and absorbed again. As with anything, if you have enough material between you and the gamma ray, then the material is going to absorb the gamma ray and you'll be safe. But you need a lot of material between you and a gamma ray to be protected. The same goes for an x-ray. X-rays have enough energy to get through most tissue in the body except for bone, and that's why X-rays are used to image bones. What happens is that you are placed between the X-ray generator and the film. The X-rays pass through the soft, lower-density tissue of your body, and they are absorbed by the film. But the X-rays do not pass through the denser bone, and so do not hit the film. By the very fact that x-ray imaging works, your body is absorbing that x-ray radiation and causing damage to your cells. But as with everything discussed so far in this episode, it's all about the dosage. All of these forms of light are also emitted by the sun and all other stars. While it's true that the majority of the sun's light is emitted in the visible and near-visible energy levels, some is emitted as gamma rays and some as radio waves. Some is emitted as x-rays, and some as microwaves. Some as ultraviolet, and a lot as infrared. If you are on the day side of our planet and can see the sky, you are being constantly hit by gamma, x, and ultraviolet photons from the sun. So, to my colleague who just got the window office with lots and lots of windows and a beautiful view of the mountains, you're getting more radiation than I am in my office with the window that faces an office building and I can't see the sky. So there. But more seriously, we are all getting exposed to this kind of radiation constantly, and we don't all develop cancer at age zero and die. It's all about the dosage. From radiologyinfo.org, a quick bone x-ray of an extremity like your hand or your foot is equivalent to being outside for three hours. Granted, that's more time than I usually spend outside in a day, but it's really not much time. Big whoop as the kids may or may not be saying these days. A chest x-ray is longer, where you get two years worth of x-rays during the imaging. A dental x-ray is between the two at one day's worth of x-rays. That's why it's not dangerous for you to get a few x-rays at the dentist's office once a year. But the dental hygienist who may perform several on patients per day should be behind a protective screen. It's all about the dosage. In comparison, the Apollo astronauts did wear radiation detectors. The maximum dose was absorbed by the Apollo 14 astronauts at 28.5 millisieverts, which is equivalent to about 9 to 10 years worth of normal background radiation on Earth's surface. So, in the space of a few days, they got nearly a decade's worth of radiation. Not good, but not deadly you get almost the same amount from getting a PET scan. But if this had been a mission to Mars, where they were traveling in space for six months as opposed to ten days, we're talking about literally more than an order of magnitude difference, and we're getting to the point where this is a lethal amount of radiation for an average-sized adult. That's why we were able to go to the moon with Apollo, and radiation wasn't really a problem. But radiation is a significant issue when designing a mission to, say, Mars. With that said, I got sidetracked a little bit. 
I talked about gamma rays, I talked about x-rays. What's left for ionizing radiation that's light is ultraviolet. Ultraviolet, or UV, not to be confused with the insanely obnoxious digital rights management system called UV that just came with my Star Trek 4K Blu-ray, UV light is classified yet again into three different subtypes, which each have varying levels of danger for people. Unhelpfully, of course, not only are there three subtypes of ultraviolet light, but there are two different ways to make these three subtypes, and the second way adds yet another set of three different subtypes to make six in total, and they're all used more or less commonly. So, let's go through them. Going from most dangerous to least dangerous, so from highest energy or shortest wavelength to longest wavelength or lowest energy, there's extreme UV, or EUV. EUV is just as ionizing as X-ray, but it's completely absorbed by Earth's atmosphere, so almost every human doesn't have to worry about it. So moving on. Next is vacuum UV, or VUV, which is almost completely absorbed by Earth's atmosphere, so again, we don't really have to worry about it. Next is a very, very narrow range of ultraviolet light that's emitted by the hydrogen atom. This is ionizing radiation, but yet again, almost all of it is absorbed by the atmosphere. There aren't really any natural sources of UV radiation on Earth itself, although humans have created plenty of artificial lights that generate UV at this hydrogen emission line. But, just as the upper atmosphere absorbs a majority of these three kinds of UV, the lower atmosphere absorbs them also. So unless you decide to go tanning under an EUV light, you're probably going to be fine. Next up is ultraviolet C, or UVC, roughly equivalent to far UV through middle UV. This is also absorbed by the atmosphere, but it is dangerous if you were to sit under a UVC light. UVB is next. This is mostly absorbed by the ozone layer, but not entirely, and some UVB light will reach the ground from the sun. This is especially true if you live in an area of Earth where the ozone is particularly thin, including some equatorial areas, the South Pole, and also Australia, although it changes seasonally and it really is only a bigger issue during the autumnal months in Australia. Also, Chile in South America has a really thin ozone layer. Finally, there's UVA, roughly the equivalent of near UV. This is not absorbed by ozone, and almost all of the UVA from the sun does make it to Earth's surface. It's also UVA that most artificial sources of ultraviolet light will create, including ultraviolet LEDs, ultraviolet lasers, and so-called black lights. In humans, fortunately, UVA does not do much damage. UVA photons are generally non-ionizing and won't damage your DNA. UVB, however, does. And as I said, when I first introduced this section on light as radiation, nature doesn't really care how humans have subdivided things up. That means that for some of the higher energy UVA photons, those are going to cause harm. And once you get into the middle of UVB, you're really kind of in trouble. It's because of this continuum, and it's because of how this continuum interplays with the atmospheric absorption that medical professionals say you shouldn't spend too much time in the tanning beds or out in the sun. If you do spend a lot of time outside, you should protect your skin in some way. The UVB photons can penetrate the dead layers of skin and get to the living cells underneath and cause damage. 
Sunscreen lotion has specific molecules in it that are designed to absorb or reflect these wavelengths of light and prevent them from making it to and through your skin. With that said, there are plenty of other podcasts or places where you can get more information on that, so I'm not going to go into more detail on how these work, but the fundamental concept still comes down to the idea of blocking the radiation. In this case, higher energy photons of UV light from making it to and through your skin and then interact with the molecules in your body, stripping the electrons and doing bad things as a result, like interfering with proper DNA replication. And again, it all comes down to dosage. If you have melanin in your skin, which is the molecule that darkens skin, spending an hour outside probably is not going to do much damage. If you have albinism, and so you lack any melanin, it will. If you have a lot of melanin in your skin, and so you have a darker skin tone, you could probably spend all day outside at latitudes where there's a lot of ozone, so, you know, most of the United States or Europe is not going to give you any issues. If you have less melanin, or you're lily white and semi-translucent like me, then you may have some issues if you try to do that. The almost last type of radiation that I'm going to briefly touch on, briefly relative to the length of this episode, is the non-ionizing light radiation. I've talked about particles which are bad and light which is bad, but there are other kinds of light which aren't as bad. Once you reach the visible, you're good. Visible, infrared, microwave, and radio do not have enough energy to ionize matter in your body and cause damage. It really doesn't matter how much radio wave energy, for example, is beamed at you. It's not going to do damage to you because it doesn't interact with the matter in your body. This is what Einstein won a Nobel Prize for, the photoelectric effect. It doesn't matter how intense that beam of energy is. So, for example, how strong that microwave signal is. It's not going to dislodge electrons from the material in your body. It will only dislodge electrons if the energy level of the individual photon is enough to do so. So you have to go up the energy spectrum and hit it with something like ultraviolet X or gamma ray photons. And to those of you who are pedantic, this is not a 100% accurate generalization description of the photoelectric effect. I know that, but I've tailored it to fit the situation that I'm talking about, so just go with me here. With that in mind, the same goes for cellular phones and wireless internet. I don't care what people who claim they have EHS, or electromagnetic hypersensitivity, claim. Infrared, microwave, and radio energy does not interact with your body. The individual photons, regardless of how many photons there are, do not have enough energy to hurt you. With a tiny asterisk as a footnote. So that asterisk or footnote has two caveats. The first caveat is how a microwave oven works. The oven works by emitting a single frequency of light in the microwave range. That single frequency coincides with the frequency that's absorbed by water molecules. And so, the way that a microwave oven works is by emitting that light, and it's absorbed by the water molecules in the food or drink inside of the microwave oven. As those water molecules heat up by simple conduction, which is touching, the surrounding molecules are also going to heat up. Like, if you're in a tightly packed room and someone starts to move, everyone around them also has to move. That's it. The microwave photons can't escape the microwave oven because it has shielding that is extraordinarily efficient at reflecting those photons back inside the oven so they're absorbed by the food. If it didn't, then the microwave oven would not be very efficient. 
Through this, or from this, we can examine one of the more common pseudoscientific claims that microwave ovens irradiate food and render it either radioactive or devoid of any nutritional value. First off, we have to define the term irradiate. All that irradiate means is to expose to radiation, meaning that we expose it to energy in the form of particles or waves. Technically speaking, if you are, well, anywhere in the universe, you're being irradiated by some form of light. But people like, say, the food babe probably don't want to tell you that, or probably actually don't even know that. So, in the case of microwave oven, we're exposing the food to waves of energy, in this case, photons. Well, wave-particle duality. Anyway, moving on. The implication that people make when they say that you're irradiating food is that the food is somehow absorbing deadly particles. That's completely wrong, although it technically is being irradiated, just like you are being irradiated right now. But those microwaves are absorbed by the food and nothing is left but the heat. And so the claim that it destroys the nutrition in the food, well, that is correct only in the sense that when you cook food, you are destroying some of the chemical bonds in the molecules which are beneficial to you. Cooking over a stove, a grill, a fire pit, or a microwave in broad brush strokes is not going to be very different in terms of destroying the types of micronutrients in the food. In fact, very, very generally speaking, most micronutrients are lost due to leaching into water when you cook them. And so the faster cook time in a microwave oven actually tends to decrease the overall nutrient loss than if you were to cook over, say, a stove. But getting back to this basic idea, there is no basis for the idea that microwave ovens do bad things to food. The second caveat, or second footnote in my statement that EHS is bogus, is infrared light. Infrared light can be felt as heat energy. When these photons are absorbed by the outer layers of your skin, they increase the energy level of the dead layers of the skin, heating them up. And by increase the energy level, again, I'm not talking about ionizing here. I'm talking about it's just making them move a little bit faster. In that sense, infrared light can interact with the human body, but it doesn't do damage unless you're in an infrared oven and so you're going to get cooked. That formally brings us to the final kind of radiation, and that's thermal radiation, so-called because we feel it as heat or thermal. This is any kind of light that your skin can absorb. If exposed to enough of it, you're going to feel it as heat. This is pretty much visible, ultraviolet, and infrared in most people's general experience. This is the concept behind heat lamps in a cafeteria, or if you have a high-wattage laser pointer, you can light a match or even burn yourself. Not that I've done that before. In these cases, the skin is literally absorbing the light energy, and by absorbing it, that energy is being converted into heat. If your skin can't re-radiate it to the environment or distribute it through your body faster than it's absorbing it from the light source, then its temperature is going to increase. This can also happen with microwave ovens, but it can never happen under a natural circumstance with a microwave oven, unless that microwave oven is insanely, insanely defective. But if you were to, say, somehow break your microwave oven such that the microwaves could
could escape, then you can burn your skin and muscles because the microwaves are at a frequency which will penetrate into the body about 17 millimeters, or a little over half an inch. In the few cases where people have been exposed to microwave oven energy, different people have had different amounts of damage, although it's almost always been temporary. And most other microwave photons are going to go less deep. For example, there's the active denial system, nicknamed the pain ray. This uses microwave energy at a frequency that penetrates only 1 64th of an inch into your body, or 0.4 millimeters. This is still inside of the skin, and in two seconds, it can heat the tissue up to 130 degrees Fahrenheit, or 54 degrees centigrade, which is going to cause pain, although they claim it has no lasting damage. But again, it must be said that this is the dosage that matters. The pain ray works by focusing a beam of microwaves and using it at a very, very high wattage, significantly higher than any microwave oven by a factor of about 2,000 or more. With microwaves, the higher the frequency, which means the shorter the wavelength and closer to infrared light, the less deep it's going to penetrate into the skin before being absorbed. That means that once you get to radio waves, most is going to pass through the body without being absorbed at all. Effectively, radio photons don't even see the human body, and so they're not going to act as thermal energy, at least for people. With that said, we've reached the summary part of the episode where I'm going to try to put all of these different parts together and hopefully you're going to be able to better understand the dangers and non-dangers of the term radiation. And then I'm going to talk about another example or two of pseudoscientific claims. First, to recap the most basic thing, radiation is simply the emission or the transmission of energy. This is done through particles or through light. There are two ways that radiation can hurt you. First is what's called ionizing radiation, and that means that when particles or light hits you, it has enough energy to remove electrons from atoms. That means that all of the careful chemistry that goes on in the body is now messed up for whatever atom that was, or molecule that atom may have belonged to. This happens all the time, and the issue is just how much happens at once, or cumulatively over time. In particular, this can mess up DNA replication, which can lead to bad things like different forms of cancer. For radiation to be ionizing, it has to have enough energy to knock that electron off. And second, it has to be able to get to the live tissue in your body. That enough energy comes in the form of moving very quickly for particle radiation or being a really short wavelength for light energy. But it still has to get into your body. Alpha particles are just helium atoms, and so unless you ingest the substance that's going to emit alpha particles, it's not going to hurt you. Beta particles are a bit more able to get into your body, but if you're wearing a tinfoil suit, you're fine. Neutrons are also bad, but unless you work in a nuclear reactor, normal people don't have to worry about that. Cosmic rays are similar, but typically much higher energy than any of these and are a real issue for prolonged spaceflight if you're not protected from them. Short flights are fine, but again, it's all about the dosage. Which brings us to gamma rays, x-rays, and ultraviolet, which I actually initially wrote down in my notes as ultraviolate. In order, those will go through your body more to less easily, but fortunately, ultraviolet is blocked by our atmosphere for the most part. 
The other way that radiation can do damage is through thermal heating. If the radiation is non-ionizing, it can still be absorbed by anything. And that absorption of the energy is just going to cause the substance doing the absorbing to heat up. Put your hand under a heat lamp and your hand is going to heat up. Those infrared light rays are absorbed by the very uppermost layers of your skin. You're not being irradiated in the sense that the radiation cannot alter the chemical structure of your body in and of itself. The only way this becomes an issue is if you absorb too much energy, you can be burned, just like touching a hot stove. That means that wireless internet and phone signals, which operate at microwave wavelengths, also do not irradiate you, in the sense of doing damage to your cells which could cause cancer. Yes, if you strapped a gigantic power source to your cell phone and boosted the strength perhaps a thousandfold, you might start to feel some heat from those microwave emissions. But all that's going to do is heat the upper few millimeters of your skin. The fact that if you place a glass of water inside of a microwave oven in a minute or so it gets hot, but you could place that same glass of water next to a cell phone or a Wi-Fi router all day and nothing changes temperature-wise, well... That should be enough evidence that these claims made by fearmongers and hypochondriacs are baseless. And again, when we say non-ionizing, that means that there's not enough energy in the individual light particles or photons to change the structure of the atoms by moving electrons. All it does is heat things up. These might sound like they're the same, but they're very, very different. And so, there you have it, a primer on radiation. Hopefully this helped you to understand the dangers and not dangers of radiation in a clearer way than you may have heard in other podcasts and will help you to understand and combat pseudoscience in a wide variety of instances. For example, the next time a parent complains that the Wi-Fi in a school is hurting their children because, hey, Wi-Fi is at a microwave frequency and we see what happens to a glass of water in the microwave... Well, you can learn what you used in this episode to understand why that claim is wrong and even point to the experiment of placing a glass of water near a Wi-Fi router for hours to show that nothing is going to happen. There is no specific logical fallacy that I called out in the episode, but a common one related to these radiation claims is the naturalistic fallacy, first coined in 1903. When I hear people preaching fear about radiation and cell phones and microwave ovens and even radio stations, despite most of that fear preaching happening on radio programs, they appeal to the naturalistic fallacy. That's where they say that because something isn't natural, it's bad. As in, humans evolved in a certain way to handle a certain amount of radiation, and adding anything to that is going to cause harm. Of course, there are innumerable ways to counter this claim, such as pointing out that humans did not evolve to live in a condominium. But condominiums generally do not cause harm, unless you have to deal with the condo association. Or, if the person is wearing, say, glasses, then you could point out that glasses aren't natural either, or a heavy winter coat. 
In my opinion, the naturalistic fallacy is kind of a hippie fallacy, one that sounds good to New Agers who advocate things like a return to nature, the paleo diet, ancient grains, and walking barefoot outside for at least an hour every day to commune with Earth energies. Now, I may be merging a few things here and committing a guilty by association fallacy, but I think that besides being an appealing fallacy made by a certain segment of the population, it's also a pretty simple one to counter. After all, poison ivy, arsenic, and lead are all natural, but I don't think that any hippie would claim that they're good for you. The second additional segment for this episode is feedback. Very rare that I've been doing it since my return, but this one is needed. Uh, This is related to the couple of episodes that I've done so far on the Flat Earth. Listener Graham has written in a few times to remind me that the Christian Church, through the centuries, rarely actually promoted a Flat Earth model. To quote from Graham, The Catholic Church formula for the calculation of Easter relies on the Earth being a sphere. In the earliest written-down version by the Venerable Bede, or B-E-D-E, he goes to great lengths to ensure that the reader understands that he is referring to the world as being spherical, like a ball, and not a circular, flat disc. Alright, fair enough. I stand or sit, in this instance, corrected. Uh, So that's going to actually wrap it up for this episode. Don't forget that you can find me online. The podcast is at podcast conveniently, dot sjrdesign.net. You can find me on Facebook under Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy. I'm treading at about 756 likes, although I seem to be gaining right now as many as I'm losing, which is a little bit weird. Uh, you can also find me personally on Twitter as drastrostew, that's Dr. Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as pseudoastro. That wraps up this topic for the 153rd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I really do hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. And if you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. You can also send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. And you can also leave a comment on the page for the episode on the website, the blog post for the podcast, the Facebook page for the podcast, and you can even tweet me at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Finally, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then tell friends, family, and some random people on internet forums that you never have to see in real life.